Hi, I'm Roger Langridge, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Keep listening. Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, and it kind of made me fearless because I, I was like, oh, I'll just, I don't know how to play guitar, but I'm going to write a song. Okay, no big deal. And, you know, you just kind of do it and you don't be concerned about how perfect it is or, you know, if, if you're going to win a Grammy or something. You know, you just sort of do it for art's sake. And I think that was my best training was being in an indie rock band. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. And Twitter, we are at the GBB Podcast. We are right here in your ears and on your Android and Apple devices somewhere inside of them. <laughs> All of the places you can find us. And how are you doing, Jamie? Uh, better than you, apparently. <laughs> I'm having a time tonight. We're, you are we're, having a time putting words together. We are we are trying to sit down and we're recording our intros and we're just yeah the words are not coming to me for some reason. That's okay. Nobody <sighs> nobody's tuning in to hear us. No, 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 they're not. We've learned that a long time ago. We're in the middle of our 70s now with these episodes or <laughs> 80s or I don't know where we are. Yeah. And we've learned a long time ago that no, nobody listens to this show to hear you and me. Right. To hear Justin no, and Jamie. No, they're they're no here way. for whoever the guest is. Yeah. We're just like, we could be anybody. We really could. <laughs> we really could. I mean, I like to think that we bring a certain bit of charm and personality, but right. really we just we're kind of like bozos well you do get you do you get some people saying those are great questions and i enjoy talking so yeah I, but you know sometimes they gotta say that yeah that's true that's true <laughs> <laughs> all right jamie so who are we talking to this week uh this week is actually um we had a great conversation uh we had cecil castellucci on who um if you're a star wars fan you may only know her from the recent uh princess leia novel that she co-wrote moving target which was one of those um what do they call them journey to the force awakens they had that whole campaign of different mm -hmm. comics and books that were sort of telling backstories of some of the characters from from episode seven and, and didn't really reveal any of the plot but sort of led into the plot somehow in way some way shape or form and uh moving target was uh the princess leia novel which was no knock on the other books i, I read all three of them <laughs> and i really enjoyed all three of them but i think of those three that was the best one mm -hmm. um but she she has a really great background um and we talked a lot about you know kind of everything that she's been involved with um you know she she used to be in like this indie punk band she uh started writing when she realized that wasn't going to work out and, and pay her bills forever um and so she's she's done written a lot of books she's written a lot of comics she's currently writing an opera um and uh she is part getting in on the ground floor um justin did you ever read the vertigo um comics from DC, sort of like yes. back in the 90s. Yes, like when yes, it did. Yep. I mean, Vertigo's still around, but like back in the 90s is when, you know, like uh, Sandman and Preacher mm -hmm. and all those books came out and they really were groundbreaking and it was, they were telling these really, really forward thinking stories. Well, DC's coming out with a brand new imprint. It's not Vertigo, they're calling it Young Animal. And it's sort of the spiritual successor to Vertigo. Uh, it's telling some experimental stories, different um, types of stories that you might not see from, you might not expect to see from DC. Uh, and she's going to be writing Shade the Changing Girl, which is sort of a reboot, reimagining of Shade the Changing Man, uh, which was one of those original Vertigo titles. Mm -hmm. um, it's still sort of very much on the hush-hush, so we couldn't talk about it very much, um, but we do touch on it, and we talk about, a lot about uh, everything else that she's got going on and has done, and mm -hmm. she's had, I think of everybody we've had on the show, she's probably the first person we've had on who wrote, who's written an opera. That's true. <laughs> not that not only that, a hockey opera. 
It's a hockey opera. <laughs> and we didn't, as much as I'm ashamed to admit it, I didn't quite realize that going right. into the interview. And if I had known that, I think we would have spent a lot more time talking about that. I know right. you would Oh, have. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So fair warning, <laughs> we may have her back to talk about hockey opera. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> for, for that matter, I think, I think she was saying at the end that she could get me some tickets for the Montreal showing of it. So I may have to go just to see there the you hockey go. opera. And we could do a live, you could like live, you know, Facebook yeah, live we'll it. Facebook you know, live that. it. Exactly. But my, my point in saying that is that she's had a very varied career. She's yes. had, she's dipped her toes in quite a number of different things. Right. And it was just, it was really interesting to talk and about. And one of my favorite parts of the conversation too is talking about the fine line between creating for a living and, you know, being actually able to pay your bills while doing Thanks. it. It was, yeah. it was really, because a lot of people think, you know, oh, they're a comic writer. They're, you know, they're rolling in the dough, driving Mercedes <laughs> Benzes, right? Not a lot, not not people that know the industry, but you know, I was gonna say, does anybody really think that? No, but but I mean, people think that people that have these really cool jobs are not not all the time, but a lot of them yeah. that they don't have any worries about stuff like that, right? It's like, you know, they they write for DC. How how could exactly. that be? You know what I mean? It's really it's a really fascinating, um, yeah. it's a really fascinating so, to hear from her on that. Yeah, sometimes commercial success and Twitter fame does not equal money in the bank. Right. <laughs> and we, yeah, we, we talk about that, and it is. It's sort of enlightening. It's eye-opening is what it is. Exactly. All right, we're going to play that interview for you right now. Enjoy. Cecil, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to go back, and you probably get this question a bit, but I know that you went to the Fame High School in New I York. I did. Um, and I need to know if it was really like the show. Are people like dancing in the hallways and playing the cello in the cafeteria? Well, I mean, yes and no. Um, I will say that I went there. Uh, the TV show had just been canceled. So um, uh, P there were still tourists that would um, go, would come by the high school and take pictures of the old building. Um, so that was pretty, pretty cool. But I mean, yeah, it was all art all the time. And we spent half our day doing um, our art, mine was theater, and then half our day doing academics. And it was some of the best art training that I've ever got. I mean, it made me the artist that I am today. Yeah. So that, that was, I was going to ask you, was your focus then was in theater? Mm -hmm. Yep, it was in theater. I actually wanted to um, go to film school. I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. And um, I, uh, I used to call up NYU Film and ask them when I could apply And um, when I was young, like 11. And they were <laughs> like, uh, you have to go to high school. I was like, well, why would I waste my time in high school? I wanted to go to college. Film school is for me. But uh, I thought, oh, maybe it'll be a good idea to become an actor's director. And uh, so that's why I went to the high school performing arts. So it was funny because even though I was doing theater and I've got a performer's heart, I always knew I wanted to tell stories. And going there, it wasn't that I wanted to be an actress. It was that I wanted to tell stories. And that was the best way for me to start. Right. So you went from wanting to be a filmmaker and telling stories that way. And then in the in the 90s, you were part of an indie band, uh, yes. Nerdy Girl. Yep. Um, so how did I'm just trying to chart the, the, the journey that you took. So how did you go from from wannabe filmmaker to indie band to writer? Like, how did that yeah. all happen? Um, there, and there's a there's a pit stop in comedy in there, too. OK, <laughs> um, so uh, I OK, so I went to PA for performing arts and then I went to NYU film school. And when I was there, um, I don't know if you know the children's book author Mo Willems, of who course. does. Yeah. Okay. So Mo Willems was my freshman mentor in college. And uh, so he was, he was a sophomore and I was a freshman and um, he showed me the ropes and he had a comedy group at NYU called the sterile yak. And so um, I joined his comedy group and did comedy, but it, the group was too big. So me and this guy, Todd Hollaback started a new group called the new group. Um, and we auditioned a bunch of people and, uh, we, you know, had this group called the new group and I had to drop out because I had to drop out of school because I couldn't afford to go anymore. And that group went on to become the state. Mm. So that was my, that was one little, not almost career that I didn't do. And then, uh, I finished up film school. I had to move to Montreal. Well, first I moved to Paris because obviously when you're poor and you have to drop out of film school, you That's move to Paris. Job. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
so I studied theater in Paris for a year and then um and then I kept thinking I was going to be able to go back to NYU but I just couldn't so I went to Concordia University for film to finish up my film degree um and when I was there um I met a bunch of girls who um had boyfriends in bands and they wanted to be in a band and but they were all too shy to sing and I wasn't um and so they were like, well, why don't you be our singer since you can't play an instrument? I was like, okay. <laughs> so then we formed a group, an all-girl group. Um, I think it was 1991 or 1992, and it was uh, it was called Bite. And then uh, and then from there, I went, I got hooked, and uh, and then I started Nerdy Girl. Um, and of course, I performed under my punk name, which was Cecil Seaskull. Right, which is yes. the best name ever. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was fun. I mean, I toured with bite. We toured across Canada with nerdy girl and Cecil Seaskull. Um, I put out two CDs, which you can get on Spotify or iTunes or anywhere. <laughs> and, um, and went, uh, traveled all across the U S and Canada and, uh, you know, That's yeah. Amazing. So yeah. Do, you, do you still sing? I mean, no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> But I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, if the apocalypse happened and we needed me to break out into song, I could I could sing for my supper for sure. <laughs> um, no, I don't I don't sing anymore. But I think that has more to do with the fact that, uh, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles, even though I moved here because my label was here, it was a label called No Life Records. Um, I didn't really end up hanging out with a bunch of musicians. It was more sort of um writers. Mm -hmm. And so I had always wanted to write books. And so, um, it was just a natural sort of segue into that. Cause I didn't have people around me that were constantly jamming and stuff. And I'm, I always, I mean, I play guitar, but I play very badly. I, I sort of, I always say that I, I speak passable guitar. Like I can mm -hmm. ask where the bathroom is or I can, you know, order a beer, <laughs> but I can't have a philosophical conversation. Yeah. And I felt like it's like tourist like, guitar, right? Yeah, tourist <laughs> guitar. And I felt like at some point the ideas that I were that I was having musically were too sophisticated for what I was able to execute and so it was just sort of time to time to move on. So, um, yeah. So, so on your road to being a writer, was there a moment that you decided, you know what, this is what I'm going to do or was it kind of you were talking like a gradual thing from hanging out with other writers? Or was there a moment in time that you remember you were like, yeah, I'm doing it? Well, I mean, I think I always wanted to be a writer right. and I just couldn't articulate it. I mean, I think for me, the thing is storytelling. I often talk about how, um, you know, how a painter or a visual artist, right? They can go on a picnic and they can bring some charcoals or uh, pencils or watercolors or, you know, pastels, and they can draw a scene of the picnic and it will look a little bit different depending on what um, medium they use. Um, and I feel the same way with stories. You know, I kind of write every kind of story you know I mean I've made mm -hmm. films I've done comedy I've done performance art I've done theater I've written comic books I've written plays I've written uh novels I'm writing you know I've written librettos for operas and it's sort of like which pen do I want to pick up I will say that um everything that I've done, my theater training, the comedy training, uh, the um, uh, uh, music, being in a punk band, all of that has informed everything else that I do. Um, and I feel like being in an indie rock band um, helped me. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and it kind of made me fearless because I, I was like, oh, I'll just, I don't know how to play guitar, but I'm going to write a song. Okay, no big deal. And, you know, you just kind of do it and you don't, be concerned about how perfect it is or, you know, if, if you're going to win a Grammy or something, you know, you just sort of do it for art's sake. And I think right. that was my best training was being in an indie rock band. Do you write to music? I do. Absolutely. Yeah. I make a playlist for every single book that I write. Really? Yeah. Is it, do you, do you stick to a certain type of genre or do you like to mix it up? I mix it up. I mean, it really, it's a, it's, it's a playlist that will help me to get into, um, the character's head and give me, um, like, because writing is super hard and I kind of hate it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to do it. And it's really hard to get your butt in the chair and it's hard to sort of get back to that dreamy place of the character. But if I have this playlist, it kind of is a, a super uh, a good cheat to get right back into the um, the character headspace. Yeah. Do you um, 
are there were there books or authors that when you were a kid or were you a reader when you were a kid or did that yeah so what what books and authors really spoke to you then stuck with you over the years um well uh you know one of the first books that i fell in love with was this um sci-fi trilogy called the tripod trilogy by john christopher um if you don't know it, you should totally get it. It's amazing. It's about um, these aliens invade Earth, and it's a middle grade novel. Aliens invade Earth. Uh, uh, they cap all humans at um, 13 years old in order to control them, and one boy's cap doesn't work when he's capped at um, 13. And so he basically starts the revolution against the aliens. And it was, you know, they walk across Europe, and I always am such a fan of books where people like walk across America. <laughs> Across Europe. Um, so that was a big book for me. And then Madeline Lingle's A Wrinkle in Time, nice. that was a big book for me. And then as I got older, you know, Vonnegut and um, Bradbury and Asimov and, I mean, basically all science fiction. Dune um, uh, were big. Uh, uh, Mockingbird by Walter Tevis, Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, those were all big, big books for me. But to answer your question, Justin, um, one day when I was like 25, um, I was thinking about books and I was thinking about A Wrinkle in Time and I was thinking about how Meg Murray, you know, had mousy brown hair and glasses and she saved the world. And she had a brilliant younger brother and she had two parents who were scientists and both of my parents are scientists and my little brother is brilliant. And I was like the dumb one in my family with mousy brown hair and glasses <laughs> And so I sat down and I wrote her a letter and, you know, I was like, dear Madeline Lingle, thanks so much for your book. Um, you know, blah, 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 blah. I really related to it. And then I wrote at the end, you know, I think I'd like to write for kids one day. And she wrote me back and she was like, dear Cecil, why don't you sit down and write a book then? <laughs> <laughs> right. I could just do that. And that's kind of when I began, you know, writing, like I never had thought about writing a book. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it was something that I always thought I was going to do, but I didn't really articulate it until I sat down and wrote that letter. Awesome. Do, do you get frustrated? I mean, you, you, a lot of your books are targeted to like a YA audience. Um, it, it, that's such a popular genre now. And there are so many books coming out. Do you ever get frustrated with the relatively short shelf life that some of these books have? Well, I mean, I think that's a, that's an issue for all authors, not just young adult authors. I mean, I think that, um, you know, publishing has become much more like, you know, the film industry, you know, um, in terms of tentpole books and um, the midlist suffers, you know, and, um, you know, I've got critical darlings in my repertoire, but, you know, none of them have been big, big breakouts. And um, that's frustrating, but that's the same frustration that I think every artist sort of deals with. You know, um, you're hoping that you're going to get the marketing money or the push or the magical whatever, you know, alchemy. And there are things that, you know, that get in the way. I mean, you know, I six of my editors have left, um, yeah. you know, in the middle of my books. And that's not helpful at all, you know, because you don't have anybody advocating for you in-house. So you know, artistic frustration is sort of part of the, um, it's sort of part of the gig. Um, you know, there are things that are harder and more heartbreaking, you know, it's heartbreaking every time I lose an editor. I think I have like trauma about it now, <laughs> but, um, but you know, but I'm really super, super proud of my body of work. And, um, I've fought really hard for each of those books and, I know that books continue to be discovered. You know, I mean, look, at the beginning of this conversation, I talked about John Christopher and the Tripod Trilogy. Hopefully some people will go and pick up those books. That's what's great about books. You yeah. Know? Well, what's also interesting to me is that you have experience and sort of a foot in these two worlds, you know, the music industry and the publishing industry. And people who are on the outside of either one of them we keep hearing like how they're undergoing these massive transformations right. and how, you know, especially the music industry has been so disrupted and how publishing we've been hearing for years. Oh, the, the, the printed book is dying. I don't believe it, but we, we hear these things. And so as someone who has had experience in both of these worlds, how hard is it to make a living in either? And is it really that much more difficult than it was before all these disruptive things really happened? 
Oh, gosh, I have a lot of things to say about that. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because I think one of the reasons why I stopped making, you know, I had a third CD that I recorded twice. I have two, you know, like big tapes, you know, like yeah. a, a two inch tapes of my of my my unreleased CD, um, because when I sort of stopped doing music, it was uh, at the, um, when MP3 started coming and um all the major labels like A&M and all of them, they all started folding and all of my friends who were in famous bands, they everybody got dropped and it was a real sort of mass <laughs> extinction event, yeah. you know, in music. And that was when I decided, I was like, all right, screw it. I'm going to become an author now, you know, like I've always wanted to write books and I'm done because mm -hmm. I didn't sort of have that fluency in music that I needed to, you know, sort of take it to the next level. So, um, I think that, you know, so that was interesting. And I kind of sort of feel like now in publishing, um, you know, there's sort of this same thing. That's how I was like, oh, I've been here before. Like, this is <laughs> the same thing that sort of happened. I think it happened to film, um, you know, sort of between music and um, publishing. Um, it's extremely hard to make money. I mean, I have had, you know, I had a really bad year two years ago where I went to bed hungry mm -hmm. and, you know, people think, oh, you're doing great. You know, you're, you know, the Star Wars book was just announced or this or that. And it's like, people don't understand that, you know, you get very, very little money unless you're the big new thing or you're already super famous. Your advances are very small. And, um, I mean, and small, it means it could be a salary for one year, but you don't get it, it yeah. all at once. You yeah. get it broken up in two parts over two or three years or in four parts over, you know, two or three years. So, um, so basically you're dealing with this like crumbs, you know, and if you're, if you're not the person who's getting the push, you know, for the marketing, um, your books aren't staying on the shelves. You don't earn back your advance. If you don't earn, you know, you owe them money. If you don't pay back <laughs> your advance, you don't get any more money. So it's very, frustrating because I mean, I have managed to live off of being a writer, but like I said, it's because I, I don't have, I don't have kids, you know, I I'm only responsible for myself. So if I go to bed hungry, that's my choice. You know, um, it'd be very different if I had, you know, a family to take care of, mm -hmm. but, um, it's very, very frustrating to be on the edge of absolute destitution all the time, but it's sort of feast or famine, you know? Um, and you're kind of too busy as an artist doing your job, being an artist and <laughs> and writing and deadlines. Um, it's, it's, it's just the hardest thing in the world. I mean, you know, a lot of times when I do school visits, um, God, I feel like I'm like depressing. <laughs> I do school visits and, um, kids say, well, how do you know? How do you know if you're really an artist? How do you know if you're really a writer? I say, try quitting. I try quitting every day. And like, you know, and I'm still here. You know, back. I, yeah. I feel like it's a, it's, it really is kind of a calling. Being an artist is, be, is, is like a, a calling. And, um, yeah, but I mean, the best way to support me or any friend of yours that is an artist is to buy their things. <laughs> Don't so, steal. Don't steal it. Don't be like, oh, but I bought your first book 10 years ago. So what did you? That's not how it works. You know, you got to keep showing up and, it, you know, tweet, like tweet about it. I mean, people don't understand that. Like I can shout out or any artist can mm -hmm. shout out into the wind and all of my friends already know me. But what you want is new people to discover you. So, by the way, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Our pleasure. So you mentioned being in the situation where, you know, it's not it might not be as financially rewarding as you want it to be. Do you find that sometimes that makes you more creative because you have to because you're like surviving that you jump into it? Or is it something that's does that hurt your creativity being in that situation? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on what day you ask me that question. You right. know, I mean, sometimes it's the most you know, it's just sort of like, you're like, oh, the tsunami yeah. <laughs> is coming towards you and you're just like dug in and you're like, I'm doing it. No, you can't <laughs> knock me down. And then other days it's just like, you're dead. <laughs> that's, that's it. So, um, yeah, I mean, the one thing that I fear and that I try not to do is to make creative choices based on fear and based mm -hmm. on, um, you know, money. 
you know, I mean, that sounds weird and counterintuitive, but I feel like, you know, sometimes I've been offered things, um, you know, to ghostwrite something or, you know, whatever. And I have to have a big check-in with myself and be like, huh, you know, food would be nice. Rent <laughs> over my head would be super nice. But how much is that going to take away from my own work? And right. what's the better gamble in the long run? I always pick me. I mean, not, you know, because I... I feel like I want to, that's what I want to do. And I don't want to spin my wheels working on someone else's thing when, um, you know, secretly or not secretly when, when I've got my own stories that I want to tell, but it's hard, it's hard to make that choice. And, you know, one time I turned down a, um, interview to, um, co-write, uh, YA novel with a celebrity. And, um, it was a lot of money and, you know, it would have been like a year of my life Mm -hmm. and, you know, Oh, it'd be so easy, but I knew it wouldn't be easy. It would probably be very difficult and maybe even hellish, you know, and, and I wouldn't be able, I would be at the mercy of that and I wouldn't be able to do my own work. And so I chose to do that and instead and I wrote my book, the year of the beasts at that, you know, during that time. And, you know, I was, it was really hard, but I'm much happier that I did that. Yeah. So I was going to ask, having said all of that, Mm -hmm. are there any regrets? I mean, would you, do do you ever wake up in the morning and be like, man, I should have just been an accountant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have a fantasy sometimes when I quit being a writer that I could be a receptionist in an office, (laughs) just like, you know, transfer phone calls and, um, you know, sign for FedEx packages, read like, you know, celebrity magazines. That's my my big fantasy. (laughs) Dream big. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. But, but, uh, but yeah, but then I, but then I always come back. Like I've caught like one day I, uh, you know, I have a, I have one now, but I had one a few years ago at, uh, I live in Los Angeles, so I had a, um, a Disney year-long pass, you know, to go to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, one day I was at Disneyland and um, because I'd woken up in the morning and I was like, I quit! I quit! <laughs> I'm going to Disneyland! Screw being an artist! I'm done! You know? And uh, I went to Disneyland and my agent called me and he was like, Hey, do you have a moment to talk? I was like, yes, I'm at Disneyland. I'm no longer a writer. And he just laughed and laughed. He was like, okay, have a fun vacation. I know you'll be back in the trenches tomorrow. And he was right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the calling, like you said, right? You just yeah. can't, as much as you want to get away sometimes, you just, you can't. Yeah. Um, but that does lead you to some really great things, like you were saying. And I know, I know you were a longtime Star Wars fan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, going back to Nerdy Girl, which I thought was amazing, was that, that you had the, that that song was all about Star Wars, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you actually camped out for six weeks in advance of episode one. Yes. Yes, which is crazy. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, it was. And I have a queen. I know you, uh, the audience can't see it, but I have a Queen Amidala tattoo that I got. From <laughs> that is pretty awesome. That. Um, yeah. I mean, basically, Star Wars is my origin story. I mean, when I saw Star Wars um, Episode Four when I was seven, I jumped up at the end of the movie, grabbed my father, and was like, there's going to be another movie, like when Darth Vader went spinning off. Sorry, spoiler. For <laughs> <laughs> And um, it was the first time that I understood that stories could continue and that it was someone's job to write stories. And that was the moment that I decided I was going to be a storyteller like that. It was the moment. So um, Star Wars was huge. And then I wrote that nerdy girl thing, um, that nerdy girl song, which is a song about going to see Star Wars with my dad. I still have my original Star Wars program that I forced him to buy me. I still have all my action figures. I still sleep on my bed sheets from 1977. (laughs) So I really liked Star Wars a lot. And then when I was in Nerdy Girl, I started going to comic book conventions. People didn't really care about Star Wars anymore. And um, there would be these bins of broken action figures, you know? Uh, There would just be like, you know, Boba Fett with no head or like, you know... (laughs) Uh, you know, Luke with a melted arm or, uh, which was appropriate or, um, you know, like, uh, 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 Han Solo with one leg or, you know, like colored faces, you know, and, um, I started collecting them and then, um, fans of nerdy girl, my band would start mailing me, um, broken action figures too. So, um, so, uh, yeah, Star Wars was huge. And then when it came 
back, I was like, when they were doing episode one, I was like, well, and I found out people were going to line up. I was like, well, clearly I have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I did it and it was great and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Did you did you line up for episode seven or for any of the other movies or was like, OK, I did it once. That's enough. I don't need to do it again. Yeah, I did yeah. it once and that was enough. Yeah, but, I did it, you know, burn me once. <laughs> that's right. You learned. Yeah. But I mean, I'm still friends with people that I know from the line. So, you know, from that original line. So, you know, I mean, I still talk to them. I still hang out with some of them. Um you know, uh, one of them was in my fantasy hockey league, you know, <laughs> thing. so, I mean, there, you know, I made great relationships there that, um, it was like, you know, it was like going to a, a nerd war or something, yeah. you know, yeah. winning and losing at the same time. So how much of a thrill was it then to finally get to play in that sandbox when you wrote oh. moving target? Well, it was, I couldn't believe it. Like when I got the email, I thought I was asleep still. Like I couldn't understand what was happening. And then I was like, wait, can I pay you to like write the book? <laughs> um, it was absolutely, I mean, I couldn't say no. Like I said, I don't usually do licensed work. I mean, you know, I've written a one shot Wonder Woman, a one shot Aquaman, one shot Green Lantern. You know, I'm doing Shade the Changing Girl now, but that's kind of a reboot. I get to do what I want. But um, but I'd never really sort of done like a licensed work because I like doing my own stuff. But I just there was no way I could say no to doing Princess Leia because she is the girl <laughs> that that informed me my whole life, you know, so it was absolutely thrilling. So I know that on that book, you worked together with Jason Fry. Was that the first time that you co-authored a book? Yes. Um, yeah. And it was like, because there's so much secrecy around everything that like, you know, he knew things, I knew things. And so I kind of made the framework and then, you know, kind of, you know, kind of came in and did some, woo, some force magic and, um, you know, and, and then it got put together. So it was, uh, it was, it was really great. And he's a great, he's a great guy. Yeah. Did did you uh, and Jason and Greg, as you know, the authors of those Journey to the Force Awakens books, did you guys collaborate at all on your respective stories? No, no, not at all. Um, and I, another thing I that that's what, you know, Mike Seglane, who's the um, who's the editor, he was the sort of overseeing. But I think it's also like you have to understand it was before the Force Awakens came out. We didn't know what was going to happen. And there was like, you know, nobody was allowed to know anything. So there were things like in my book that I was like. I didn't even know what I knew, you know? Yeah. Well, that was, I was going to ask you because those books, even on the, like the cover four on the back cover, they talk about, you know, these you know Easter eggs that are hinted at various things that we would see in episode seven. So, what, I mean, for you to be able to seed those things, did they give you anything like, oh, make sure you include, you know, X or did you just, what, did they just pull things out? It was more like, let me, let me sort of explain. I, I kind of, I went first, <laughs> so I kind of did a, um, you know, like a f the framework of the story, right? And then, then it was like, you know, Mike would come in and sort of pepper like little things, and then Jason kind of put other things in, and um, so it kind of worked like that, you know, like, like, you know, I knew that it, it was going to be a um, at the beginning for Leia was going to be giving her memoirs to a you know, a droid. And, um, and, you know, so I just named the droid, whatever. Right. right but then right. they were like, no, it's, uh, this, this is the name of the droid. BZ40. And, um, you know, I was like, okay, whatever. And then, <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh, because that's gonna show up in the movie and you do, you hear his name. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was probably the only person who was so excited, but you know, he's got an action figure and, um, and all that. And so, so it was kind of like this, it was kind of like you do your thing and then people come in and sort of a course correct, if that makes any sense. Yeah, oh, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. But I think they didn't want us to really talk to each other too much because everybody knew <laughs> something different. And right. I think, you know, I mean, it's natural. They wanted to make sure that it, it stayed pretty, you know, close. Yeah. It's really amazing to me the job that they did. They did in keeping it a secret, like yeah. something that you know how many hands were in the pot through all the different 
media empires that they're involved in and it didn't slip. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think that's because they sort of let, and they, everybody kept their eyes on their own page. And so, mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, I don't know what it was like for other people's experiences, but I think that like for, for my little, the, the three little ones that I was involved mm-hmm. with, that's the way that it worked. Let's um, move over. I want to talk about comics for a little bit. Uh, uh-huh. I know you did the Plain Janes, which was yep. um, part of DC's old Minx imprint, mm-hmm. and you're currently working on Shade the Changing Girl, which is going to be part of. They're having another new, brand new imprint, uh, Young yep. a- Young Animal. Um, and, and so, those respective titles aside, do you find that it's ex- you know exciting, or, or is it sort of daunting and challenging to be on the ground floor of these experimental projects? Well, I loved the Minx line and I loved the Plain Janes and I felt really sad that it wasn't given enough time to sort of bloom and grow the way that I think that it could have. It was really sort of a, a pioneer. Um, the the Plain Jane, I mean, Shelly Bond, you know, that was her um, sure. her imprint, her baby. Um, she's amazing. Um, she's brought me into comics and I'm forever grateful uh, for her. Um, and I think she really had a vision of what, eventually came to pass um, in terms of graphic novels and girls and um, YA. Um, I often say to Jim Rugg, who was my collaborator on The Plain Janes, like, okay, well, you know, we put on our bonnets and we got into our wagon and we went west and we died. (laughs) We died on the Oregon Trail. But you got dysentery. Isn't that what everybody always died? (laughs) We got dysentery or our starter died or whatever, but the West was one, you know, over our bones, but it was one. And I think that that's super important. Um, so that was really heartbreaking because, you know, the recession came and um, the bookstores wouldn't put the um, graphic novels into the YA section and libraries didn't really have a, you know, curated graphic novel sections for teens at the time. And so it was very, very difficult. Now that's not the case at all. So a line like Minx would thrive and grow. I feel like with Young Animal that it, um, well, first of all, it's not a teen imprint, you know, it's just a regular imprint. Um, but I think that the, the landscape for graphic novels for young adults and for adults has just changed dramatically. So, um, so I feel a little bit more, uh, invigorated because I feel like it stands a better chance with bookstores and, um, libraries and stuff like that, which is as a book person that is, um, you know, of, you know, in like, I pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but I, I mean, I think it's always really exciting when you're trying something new. Um, so, you know, but it's also, you know, scary. I, I mean, you know, I, maybe I'd like to one day, you know, be actually on Vertigo or actually, right. DC, you know, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it's still DC comics. So, right. So what, what's the hook for the young animal imprint? What sets the titles apart from the main DC universe? Uh, you'd have to ask Gerard about that. Cause it's okay. his baby. So I'm going to throw that over to Gerard and you, okay. <laughs> you can interview <laughs> Sure, hard about that. Um, but I think it's, you know, I think his tagline is, you know, dangerous stories for, for humans or, or something. So I think, um, I think it's, you know, I think it's going to be great. I mean, all the titles look amazing. I love my title. So, yeah. Um, yeah, which is Shade the Changing Girl, in case anybody missed it. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, Shade was one of the original titles when Vertigo first launched back in the 90s, and now it's back for this new imprint. So, I mean, as the writer of the new one, what what do you think is it about the character that makes it so compelling? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I think when your superpower is madness, I think that's something that's very, very compelling. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really all you need to say, right? <laughs> There you go. Um, Again, you know, I talk, we talked, most of your books and your experience writing the novels has been to a YA audience. Is it, was it difficult for you to come in on shade and sort of write toward, I mean, these are mature books. They're not just right for, you know, I mean, they're, it's like Vertigo when it first started out. This is for a mature audience. So it's sort of a different audience that you're writing to. No, I don't really, I mean, I just write a book. I know I don't ever think about, you know, the, um, the end place because that's 
that's a marketing choice, you know? Um, so what I, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't affect my writing because in a way it kind of frees it because I'm writing about a 16 year old, I mean, or a, an alien that possesses a 16 year old girl. So in a way it's in my own playground of, you know, YA and high school and all that. But I kind of have this thing that's removed um, this sort of roadblock that's removed, you know, because of the, you know, it's already, it, it, it's mature. So I can kind of play in a, um, a deeper way, not to say that in young adult literature, you can't, um, oh, sorry, I'm frozen. Uh, you can't, uh, you can't do whatever you want. I mean, young adult literature runs from very, very chaste, um, you know, uh, safe, uh, 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 clean to very, very, very mature, very, you know, very, um, uh, 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 large ideas, deep, um, dark. So, uh, but because it's for meant for under 18, when it's marketed that way, there are certain restrictions that you have. So for me, it's just that it's just removed that one restriction. So I can think about, what I'm doing and I, it can be intentional, but I don't have to, um, I don't have to, I don't have to stop myself if that makes any sense, because Perfect. I don't have yeah. to worry. I don't have to worry about, I don't have to worry about a library, not putting it in their library because it's for teens and it's got mature content because it already is a mature imprint. So, you know, but yeah. of course, because I write for teenagers, I'm hoping that I can sort of ride that line of, um, being mature and uh, teen friendly, if that makes any sense. It, it does. Um, and I know the, all of the, the books in the, the initial books, at least in young animal, they are, Gerard was sort of the initial mastermind behind most of them, all of them. So you yeah. might, you might throw this question back at him, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, what was the rationale for redefining the character and making shade the teenage girl, a teenage girl? I, you would have to ask Gerard. I mean, he came up with the slug line. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense, but, um, you know, and I, I, I just did an interview with CBR and, um, I talked about this, but I think that what makes sense for shade being, um, in a teenage girl is that when one of the things about YA, one of the things about when we're teenagers is that we feel like aliens, you know, our bodies are changing, um, you know, everything is very dramatic. Everything's the first time and stuff like that. So putting an alien in a teenager's body, I mean, teenagers already feel like aliens. So I think it makes perfect sense. But yeah. you'd have to ask Gerard. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I mean, at the, really at, thought. <laughs> at the same time, though, I know it has to have has to be kind of freeing. I mean, it's not like you're coming in to write Batman or Superman or something. You're not coming into this huge, long history. You're, you're starting over more or less. So you're not tied to this long continuity. So I have to imagine that was you felt a little bit of freedom because of that redefinition. Yeah, I think it sort of marries um, things that I like most. I get to sort of uh, create um, with wild abandon, but I get to, um, but I get to have a very, very clear uh, uh, parameter of, um, of, of where I'm playing. And, um, and that's really thrilling. That's a lot different than Princess Leia because that was very, you know, um, you know, that was a playground that I got to play in and they gave me a lot of freedom. But at the same time, there was a lot of like, well, nope, don't go that way. Nope, can't do that, you know, which is fine. I mean, that's that, you know, that's like that's the point of that. But that's it's not a reboot of Princess Leia moving target. You know, it's Princess Leia as she is, whereas like Shade the Changing Girl is a reboot. So we all know fans have their opinions about everything. And so did you receive any blowback about the changes with them or were they all pretty receptive to the idea? Of which, wh who, where? For, for shade, changing. Oh, so far, nobody's, awesome. <laughs> I haven't heard anything. We just, you just never know, right? You don't, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure it's, I'm sure someone's <laughs> angry about it right now. I mean, but someone's always angry about anything. My friends and I, we joke about this, but like whenever we sit down to write a novel, like I sit down and I'm like, oh my God, maybe this is terrible. Maybe it'll be horrible. Maybe someone will hate it. And then I'm like, oh yeah, somebody already hates it. I haven't written the book. <laughs> And well, it could be any book. Someone's already mad. And yeah. It's the worst book that was ever written in the world. So There's already blog you know, posts being exactly. Written. You know, <laughs> I have an editor, Kara Laroe, who um, 
before my books she, uh, came out, she used to make me write uh, the worst review that I could possibly <laughs> imagine of my own book. Just so that then when I saw anything, it would like be like, well, it's not as bad as what I said. <laughs> that's brilliant. I've never heard that. That's such a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but that's got to be infuriating, right? I mean, it's like you could write the best thing in the world and there's going to be people tearing it down just, you know, basically for fun because they feel like they need to. Sure. Or um, it could be sometimes people misread things and so they get fixated on something that they misread or misunderstood or didn't see or something. And, and then they, you know, they get all angry about it and they, you know, post things about it. And you're like, if you had read this one sentence with, yeah. <laughs> at the beginning of the book, if you hadn't misread that sentence, you would understand <laughs> you, this would not even be a thing. That's very frustrating because it's like, you can't like, I'm not going to go and yell at people, you know, you just don't look at it, you know, like, yeah. like Goodreads is, just don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> There's certain yeah. websites you have to train yourself that's just not to click on, right? Yeah. I mean, what I find frustrating or, you know, it's like we see everything, right? So authors and artists, I mean, even if you try to avoid things, you see it, you know, and, and what I don't understand is why, if you wrote something horrible about my book, why on earth do you tag me on Twitter? Yeah, I, I don't understand don't do that, that either. Just don't do it. Because <laughs> I already feel poorly about myself a lot of the time. Like, <laughs> I don't need to be tagged about it. I'm going to probably see, you know, your horrible review of my book at some point anyways. But, you know, don't make it go faster, you know? <laughs> time. So instead of asking you what advice you have for young readers or writers, which everybody gets asked, I want to ask instead, what is your response when people continue to insist on categorizing books as that's a girl book, that's a boy book? Like, why is that still happening? Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, and it goes even further than that. Like, you know, why is it a boy book? Why is it a girl book? Why is, you know, oh, I don't read that because it's a young adult book or, right. you know, um, mm -hmm. or uh, um, I think, I think everybody wants to get kids to read. And, um, and what they don't understand is that um, kids gravitate to what they want to read. So what I find extremely frustrating and heartbreaking is when I'm at a book festival and I've got my books in front of me at a, you know, table signing or whatever. And, um, a boy comes up and picks up one of my books that is pink or, you know, has a girl on the cover and their parents push their hand down and say, Oh no, that's not for you. Um, so it's not kids yeah. that have that problem. It's adults. You know, mm -hmm. and so I would give the advice to the adults, parents, um, which I'm sure are listening to your, you know. Yeah, no, I and I agree with you 100 yeah, percent. It is largely is, parents. You know, is is let the kid read what they want to read. If 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 girl girls for ever have been reading books where boys are the main character and mm -hmm. we make ourselves, we feel like the boy, even though we're always kind of apart. Um, you know, we, we take those adventures as our own adventures. And I think that boys will do the same thing. They do do the same thing. Um, but for some reason, uh, you know, um, uh, they're sort of, um, told not to, because there's this fear that they're not going to read. But the trick is, is that kids will read what they want to read, what excites them. If they show interest in reading a book with a pink cover, who cares? You know, that yeah, if they don't like it, they'll put it down. <laughs> like mm -hmm. you can still buy it for them. If they don't like it, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll they won't finish it. I mean, that's what every all kids do, you know? So um I think that uh I think that it's 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 more about not you know, I think I think we think that kids don't know what they want and maybe they don't know what they want sometimes, but they have to figure that out for themselves. And I think that it goes for that with reading. Um, they have to sort of discover the glorious stories that are there. And if it means that there's a girl who's having an adventure, then, you know, I mean, because it's really not the girls that have the problem of not reading a boy book. Girls <laughs> will read boy books because absolutely. they're just called books. Yep, absolutely. So you know, don't, don't swat your boy's hand away from a girl book. Give him all kinds of books. Yeah. Yeah. 
Cecil, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Great, you con- so such much. a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week on the great big beautiful podcast that was a good interview i like it, it. was i, <laughs> I, I left a cliffhanger there that you did there was like a little pregnant pause i like that but uh <laughs> no it was it was good um i love it when interviews don't go the mm-hmm. way that you plan them to i don't know if we i really ha- ever have a plan i mean i have a bunch of questions and i kind right. of think i know what direction it's going to go yeah. but i love when in, i love when conversations just sort of go 90 degrees from where you think it's going to go. And right. this, this, I don't know if this went really went 90 degrees, but it was, well, yeah, we went in some, some directions that, that I hadn't planned for. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Well, if only we but had, it was good. like you had mentioned earlier, if only we had known about the hockey opera, we, oh my God. we could have still done. kicking myself. <laughs> and Jamie just got back from Comic-Con San Diego and woohoo. Woohoo. And I can't wait. We're going to, we're not going to get into it now, but when <laughs> please <laughs> i need an app yeah so what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a special episode where we talk about jamie's i always love hearing his experiences from these con these conventions i don't know yeah, why i just love I him hearing them so i did some interviews i recorded some audio and it was kind of a whirlwind and um we're gonna we're gonna put it all together for you maybe it'll be a round table it'll be yeah. like an extra episode of just some, a mishmash of things that um i i gathered together and uh yeah, I, honestly, at this point, I can't think about anything. <laughs> All right, so we're, that'll that'll come soon. We're gonna do it. It'll, it'll, let it him will come in time. Let him decompress, and then we'll <laughs> we'll get there. All right, guys, thank you so much for coming by week after week. Tell your friends about us if you haven't. It's the way we grow. It's the way we <laughs> I grow. Thought you were gonna say tell your friends about us if you have any. <laughs> that too, maybe. You know? <laughs> I wouldn't. I don't have very many friends I could share it with. So. Um, yeah. You know, if you if you really like what you hear every week, share it with your friends that are like minded in the geek world or creative world. They may enjoy it. You never know. And we yeah. can, you know, crazier the more, things have happened. It's, it's crazy, crazier things have happened. Um, the more people we get listening, the better guests we can get. They're not better. You know what I mean? The more guests we can get. And, uh, you know, it just helps us uh, stay on track with that. And it gives Jamie a, a lot more ability to reach out to people <laughs> to yeah, tell it them makes, right? it, it validates me so i don't be like you know send these emails and be like, please we're yeah, so cool please. jonathan frakes had pity on us <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to find us on twitter we are at the gbb podcast facebook.com slash the gbb podcast as well and i am justin at 140 justice on twitter and uh, pretty much everything else <laughs> and i'm jamie at the roar bots everywhere right and the robots. The robots. <laughs> I love that. Except, except um, what's that thing the kids are using, Snapchat? I'm not there. No, you're not there. No, I'm, an, I'm old and curmudgeonly. Yeah, I get, you don't want to be there. It's a weird, <laughs> weird world. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, we will see you next week right here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Have a great week. Take care.